morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Today is Friday, April the 22nd, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. East African heads of state have resolved to deploy a regional force to the Democratic Republic of the Congo to fight a rebel insurgency in the country. The focus is on Democratic Republic of Congo, and the intention is to return peace in the East of the Democratic Republic Congo that has been rocked by the insurgencies. And financial experts say that more African governments are opening up to the idea of financial inclusion through payment digitization because of its impact on their country's GDP. Everyone wants financial inclusion. Who doesn't want financial inclusion? Because everyone has realized that the more digitization of financial transactions there are, the more you are impacting GDP per capita. Ashke Grover, CEO of Cellulant, one of the largest digital payment companies in Africa. More with him later on in the show. And South Africa has recorded a sharp increase in COVID-19 infections, the highest rate in three months, raising concerns about a possible larger surge in the disease. We'll have those stories and sports coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story in Kenya, the second regional heads of state conclave on the Democratic Republic of Congo convened in the capital Nairobi, hosted by Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta. The meeting was attended by DRC's President Felix Tshisekedi, Brunis Evarist Ndaishimie, and President Museveni of Uganda. They agreed to deploy a regional force to the Democratic Republic of the Congo to fight a rebel insurgency in the eastern part of the country. According to reports, a number of armed groups continue to operate in the eastern DRC despite the presence of a UN peacekeeping force in the area. Fighting between the groups and the Congo's armed forces, FARDC, that include the Uganda Allied Democratic Forces, has led to the death and displacement of thousands of civilians over the years. The United Nations estimates there are currently 4.5 million internally displaced persons in the DRC and more than 800,000 refugees in neighboring countries. Reporter Kennedy Wandera in Nairobi has been following the meetings, and he tells me that the leaders called on all armed groups in the DRC to join in the political process to resolve their issues. In Nairobi, we've, we've had President of the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, Anthony Chisekedi Chilombo. Uh, we have the President of the Democratic Repub- uh, Republic of Burundi, Evariste Ndaishimie. And we've also had uh, President of Uganda, uh, Yoweri Kaguta Museveni. Uh, but uh, President uh, Paul Kagame of Rwanda did not attend this particular meeting, but sent Rwandan foreign minister and, of course, the host, President Kenyatta. The focus is on Democratic Republic of Congo, and the intention is to return peace in the east of the Democratic Republic Congo that has been rocked by the insurgencies. Now, is this just a meeting of uh, the heads of state or are there other individuals or parties that have been invited to the meeting? At this point, we are not able to tell who is in the meeting because the meeting has been conducted in, in, in secrecy, in too much secrecy. Uh, but according to the communique that was sent to the media, uh, Kenya State House says uh, this president and then the foreign minister from Rwanda were the ones who attended. But when you look at the deliberations that came out of this particular meeting, you'll of, of course know 
that there could be representatives of the armed groups uh, in Democratic Republic of Congo in Nairobi. And have they put forward any concrete plans on how to achieve peace in the Eastern DRC? Absolutely. Uh, they, 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 they've discussed this particular, the progress of the meeting captured an, uh, two issues in two frames. The first, they looked at the political track and they also looked at the military security enforcement uh, track. Now, on the political track in the, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, the, heads of, the, head, the heads of state uh, agreed to uh, embark on a political process under the leadership of President Uhuru Kenyatta uh, to facilitate consultations uh, between the Democratic Republic of Congo and the local armed groups in Congo. Uh, and the outcome of this particular meeting actually is just a consultative dialogue uh, between President uh, Anthony uh, Felix Chisekedi and the representatives of local armed groups in Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, today, which is Friday, 22nd April, uh, under the auspices of President Uhuru Kenyatta, who has uh, graciously agreed to host and provide logistical support for the consultations in Nairobi, uh, this particular meeting between President uh, uh, Anthony uh, Felix Anthony Chesekedi of Democratic Republic of Congo and the representatives of the local armed groups in DRC are supposed to meet in Nairobi in these particular consultations. And what does this uh, security arrangement look like? In the security arrangement, they agree, the, the, heads, the heads of state agree to uh, establish a regional force to help contain and fight where necessary the negative forces, which they call negative forces, uh, under the urgent, urgent deployment of, of that particular force of the region. That, that's what President Kenyatta says. And do we know of any particular armed groups that have been invited to this uh, conclave? At this, point, no, at this point in time, we do not know who was invited in this particular meeting. But when you look at, uh, at that particular consultative meeting that is taking place today in Nairobi, we are told that all Congolese armed groups will be part of this consultation. So we expect... And we suspect that uh, all Congolese representatives of all Congolese armed groups are already in Nairobi, and they may, they may be part of this conversation, this consultation that is going to take between them and the president of the Democratic Republic of Congo under the guidance of President Kenyatta in Nairobi. That was reporter Kennedy Wondera speaking to me from Nairobi. Research shows that Africa has one of the biggest populations, about 450 million people without bank accounts. With governments across the continent developing strategies to include more of their people into the financial system, more private sector players have also entered the marketplace to deliver digital financial services. A digital payment is the transfer of money or currency from one account to another using digital payment technologies such as mobile wallets or mobile payment apps. In Africa, the digital payment landscape is evolving rapidly, driven by financial technology companies. They are capitalizing on increased internet and mobile penetration to make the continent the largest mobile money market in the world. On the sidelines of the Africa FinTech Summit, taking place here in Washington, D.C., I caught up with Ashke Grover, the CEO of Cellulant, one of the largest digital payment companies in Africa. He tells me that many governments are now open to the idea of financial inclusion through payment digitization because of its impact on the country's gross domestic product. Uh, we've now been in operation as a business for almost 18 years. We'd like to think we're the pioneers 
of, of, of fintech in a way in Africa. Right. And what does it take to build a robust payment infrastructure on the continent? I mean, I think, I think one of the things that, you know, we got into this space so early that there was a time when this concept of APIs did not exist and we were building roads to connect to to things like to connect to banks and to M-Pesa when APIs did not exist. Today they do. But, you know, it's a, it's a lot of effort in Africa because the market is very, very fragmented. You go to Ghana, you have three mobile operators, uh, five different banks. Um, you go to Nigeria, it's a different dynamic. You go to Kenya, it's a different dynamic. And every integration is a process. So the amount of time it takes, it's like sort of, you know, how do you think about it? If you had to build a road from every village to every district or to every county, every road has a different terrain and has different people mm. and different connections and different things to take care of, right? And that's what we've built over the last couple of years. And we've now built 400 of these uh, unique, discrete connections. And what kind of policies and regulations are necessary to grow this sector, Father? What are some of, I guess, the roadblocks, roadblocks that you, you you meet along the way as as you're trying to navigate these different terrains? I, mean, I, I think, I mean, I think uh, at a certain level, I feel like regulation has only been supportive. There have been countries where no regulation existed. And those countries are now beginning to also take a cue from those where regulation has been put in place. So I think... The framework for businesses like us, which typically operate on what is known as a payment service provider license, yeah, um, is there's been more and more education and people have been taking larger and larger strides in that direction. I think that's generally been helpful to our business rather than being a blockage to our business. Um, you know, can it, can it be further improved? Can it be more dynamic? Answer is probably yes and to all of those questions at any point of time. But I think the biggest barrier to growth has really been uh, the ease of cross-border flow of money, mm. you know, and, and availability a lot of times of foreign currency to be able to transact. I think that is something that we, we, we as a, let's call it continent, need to solve. Uh, it's not an easy answer because today everything is in a way pegged to either the US dollar or to the euro. And, and, and so, you know, you don't have direct ability to, you don't have the ability to directly exchange the Naira for Ugandan shillings. As an example, the exchange is Nigeria to US dollar, US dollar to Ugandan shilling, right? Mm -hmm. And so on both ends, you need US dollar. <laughs> and and that's where, you know, I think things so it's it's more of a structural problem. It's not something that we can solve in right. a day. But it's the it's the first time I've probably talked spoken to somebody who says the regulatory environment is supportive rather than a barrier. Is you know mostly say the people say that the policymakers in these countries don't understand these new products, these new ideas, and that they are in the way of the growth. Maybe there's an advantage of having been on the continent for very long maybe we have a better appreciation of how things work better understanding yeah and and i think and i think that helps because you deal better when you understand how it works yeah so you foresee or forecast some of exactly. the barriers exactly and say, we know yeah, how this, to is how, this is this. how we want to do this is how we do it and and i've seen that most people are very open to conversation i don't think there is that much of engagement with regulators 
um, you know, as a startup, it's not very easy to do. Mm. What do you do? You want to build a business, you have to hire people, you have to raise money, and then you have to manage 10 regulators. Not an easy job to do when you're very early stages of business, when you can't hire somebody who heads compliance and risk and manages this stuff for you, right? It's it's not easy to do. So I can imagine, I can empathize with people who start up businesses and want to achieve that. It's not easy to do. But I think when you do put in that effort and that time into that process, in my opinion, it does pay off. And it pays off well because people are open to listening. You see, today, everyone wants financial inclusion. Who doesn't want financial inclusion? Because everyone has realized that the more digitization of financial transactions there are, the more you are impacting GDP per capita. That was Ashkit Grover, the CEO of digital payment company Cellulant. He was speaking to me from the sidelines of the Africa Fintech Summit here in Washington, D.C. Debrick Africa continues. South Africa has recorded a sharp increase in COVID-19 infections, the highest rate in three months, raising concerns about a possible larger surge in the disease. Vicky Stark reports from Cape Town in South Africa. South Africa's National Health Department reported 4,406 new COVID-19 cases in a 24-hour period ending Thursday. The number represents a considerable jump from the 2,846 cases reported the day before and the previous seven-day average of 1,549. National Institute for Communicable Diseases Executive Director Professor Adrian Purin confirmed Omicron as the dominant COVID-19 variant in the country and said no new variant of concern has been reported. He insisted South Africa is not experiencing a new wave of COVID-19, noting that hospitalizations remain low. And as you know, hospitalizations, in other words, severe cases, severe symptomatic cases that end up in hospital, either in high care or in ICU, I think will be the more uh, appropriate proxy, if you like, or indicator that we have actually reached, uh, if you like, the, the first resurgence. When asked how the pandemic is affecting South Africa compared to other countries, he noted that Omicron caused high caseloads in Britain and the United States. They are obviously experiencing differences in terms of what we experienced in terms of the Omicron uh, resurgence, and then that they have not only high numbers of cases, but also hospitalizations. So they, they really are severely affected in both those particular countries. But that's not to say that you know, our next resurgence won't resemble that and I think that's the concern um, that we need to really be prepared. He says even though South Africa plans to do away next month with the national state of disaster restrictions adopted in the wake of COVID-19, other measures will be put in place. Those have been subject to public comment. So I think we'll probably see a mixture of things that we had in place. So for example, getting ventilation right. Again, I don't think people are focused a lot on that. Um, but I think that's an area, especially for indoor events, um, offices, um, restaurants, and so forth, that, that's going to be critical. The main opposition party, Shadow Minister for Health, Michelle Clark, said she would be asking Parliament's Health Committee to analyse the rise in numbers when it meets Friday. Um, it's expected during this time of year to start seeing the resurgence um, because, you know, you're, starting to, you're moving into the colder winter months people are huddling more 
Um, and so you would see um, a spread of COVID happening because, you know, the environment changes. But if you look at the data that's been produced um, within the clusters, like for, for example, old age homes, um, schools, etc., definitely not showing that resurgence in those clusters as yet. She added that while the party is happy the national state of disaster restrictions are coming to an end for the sake of the economy, there had already been 170,000 objections to the new proposed restrictions. Those include unhappiness over the continued 50% capacity in venues like restaurants. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. Nigeria's Air Force is investigating the crash this week of a training aircraft that killed two officers in northern Kaduna State. It is the fourth federal crash in the past year for Nigeria's military, which has been struggling to fight terrorists and bandits and to acquire better aircraft. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. Nigerian Air Force spokesperson Edward Gapquet said in a statement Wednesday, the force has launched a probe into the cause of the crash and it has established a board to oversee the process. The trainer aircraft crashed Tuesday near a base in Kaduna State, killing two officials on board. Nigeria's Air Force Chief Oladayo Amao visited the base Wednesday and assured officers that accidents will be curbed. But after four crashes in one year, the accident is raising major concerns. Security analyst Senator Irebu says it affects the morale of the officers. The frequency is appalling, especially in a non-combatant situation. And this is generally as a result of either lack of maintenance or carelessness or mechanical fault. It affects also the morale of the armed forces and even the populace in their belief in the actions and capacity of the armed forces. At least 20 security personnel have been killed in air accidents since January of 2021, including the then Nigerian Army Chief Ibrahim Atahiru, who died along with 10 top officials when the aircraft they boarded crashed in Kaduna State last May. More recently, seven officers were killed in February 2021 when a plane crashed in Abuja soon after reporting engine failure. Bevan security analyst Kabira Damu says past investigations were not made public and that affects accountability. To check the crash, the crashes, uh, number one is to make sure investigations are thoroughly conducted and that their outcomes are um, studied and implemented. Uh, part of the challenge is that we are not hearing enough of the outcome of previous investigations, so we don't know what led to those accidents and so corrective measures are rarely implemented. But retired Air Force officer Darlington Abdullahi argues the results of investigations are not meant to be publicized and that crashes do not hamper security operations. When the results of such investigations come out. They are not uh, public, uh, they are given to, sent to the appropriate authorities 
to use and uh, with a view to uh, preventing reoccurrence of such accidents. And when accidents do happen, that does not uh, cripple the system entirely because there are uh, uh, arrangements put in place. For, I mean, so many people are in training and other aircraft will come in, you know, but there are often lessons to learn. Last week, the U.S. approved a previously suspended arms trade with Nigeria worth nearly $1 billion. The deal calls for the U.S. to supply Nigeria with a dozen attack helicopters as well as engines for the aircraft. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Cameroon's energy ministry has said Western sanctions on Russia have driven up the cost of fuel imports and led to a fuel shortage. The lack of diesel fuels this week left hundreds of trucks taking goods to the neighboring Central African Republic and Chad stranded at the borders. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Yawunde. Cameroon says thousands of buses, trucks and cars have been stranded in the Central African state for two weeks by diesel fuel shortages. The shortage has left them unable to deliver goods to Cameroon's landlocked neighbors. 43-year-old Brian Chaba is a truck driver. Chaba says his truck transporting computers imported by Chad's government through Cameroon's Douala Seaport has been stuck in Cameroon's capital, Yaoundé, for three days because of lack of diesel fuel. He says he is not sure he will arrive in the Chaden capital, Jamina, within a week as expected. Chaba says he is running short of money to settle parking fees for his truck, buy food, and pay for his lodging in Yaoundé. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News. Yawundi, Cameroon. And now it's time for Daybreak Africa Sports. And with that, we go to Abuja, Nigeria with Samson O'Malley. Good morning to you, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too, Jackson. We begin the sport with the second leg of the CAF Champions League, the elite club competition on the African continent, which takes place across various venues on the continent this weekend. Osporons will welcome ES Satif to the start Olympic Hamadi Agribi in raids on Friday. The two sides head into the return tie in raids on Friday night with the match evenly poised following a nil-nil draw in the first leg in Algiers last weekend. In Johannesburg, South African side Memelody Sundowns will host Angolan side Petro Duluanda. Sundowns suffered their first defeat in the Champions League this season after losing the first leg quarterfinal against Petro Duluanda 2-1 in Luanda last weekend. They will have grabbed a draw but VAR used in the quarterfinal for the first time ever ruled out a last minute equalizer. Memelody Sundown's defender Lille Lake says the match against Petro is a must win for them. Like everybody knows it's, it's a must win for us and we, we're going all out to, to win on, on, on Saturday. We, we have to score, we have to win to qualify and, and go through to the semi-final. 
Defending champions Al Hakli take a 2-1 victory advantage from the first leg in Cairo last weekend to Casablanca to face a Raja Club Athletic. It will have been a comfortable 3-1 margin had they converted a second-half penalty, but but Anas Ziniti ensured his Raja side head home with a realistic target to beat. On Sunday, another team that will face the wrath of a stormy and noisy third moment of five in Casablanca is Algerian outfit Ciel Bozidad and the trade tackles with Wadak Athletic Club. Wadak picked up a crucial one-year result in Algiers, giving them a priceless advantage heading into Sunday's return duel. Staying with football news, former Arsenal and Paris Saint-Germain player Kaba Diawara, formerly of Bordeaux, have been confirmed as Guinea's new coach. Sergio Diallo, vice president of the Normalization Committee, which manages the current affairs of the Guinean Football Federation, said Diawara was chosen from four candidates and judged more likely to lead the national team towards the expected performances. He had been appointed coach of the Sile National of Guinea three months before the African Cup of Nations, succeeding the French DDA Six, who had been in office since 2019. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson. Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Jackson, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. I'm Jackson.